Welcome to the Femininjas podcast. And in this series of podcasts, we talk about issues around detonating patriarchy. It's a learning space for the becoming feminists. It's a takeover from feminists. We bring in different people. Intergenerational issues. Rethinking issues around economies, rethinking transformational leadership. What does that look like? We speak up, we speak out, we claim our rights. We are all about action. And doing all this, we don't forget to slay. And we're bold, we're fearless, we are unapologetic. We'll be inviting you to join us in our conversations as together we detonate. Hi. Hi, Rachel. Oh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> this is Rachel Kagoya. I am an African feminist. I work with Feminet. I am the communications and information lead at Feminet. And I'm excited to be joining Anasuya for this conversation. Hi. Hi, Rachel. I'm Anasuya Sengupta, and I'm part of a feminist collective and global multilingual campaign called Whose Knowledge, which is a campaign to center the knowledges of marginalized communities, or as we like to remind everyone, the majority of the world yes. online. Mm-hmm. And... It's such a joy to be back in conversation with you and to be in physical space with you, my friend. Oh, lovely, lovely, lovely. We just want to take a down memory lane and start thinking about decolonizing the internet. Where did we start with this journey? Both for feminine, but also for whose knowledge. I think it's important for us just to keep going back in memory and just say, where did we start lighting this fire? Because this fire is really lighting up and lighting up and lighting up. And very soon, this bonfire will be lighting the continent, you know. <laughs> and going beyond the continent from Africa to Asia, across, you know, the various continents. And just thinking in terms of 2018, something was happening in 2018. Anasuya, what was happening in 2018? So much, my friend, so much. Well, Whose Knowledge started as an idea in 2016. We launched at the AWID Forum in Brazil, in Bahia, in Brazil. And for those who are not familiar with AWID, it's an umbrella organization called the Association for Women's Rights in Development. It's an umbrella association for feminists across the world, but particularly the global south. And we launched at the time in Brazil because we knew that there was really no organization of black and brown women from the global south or of the global south looking at the intersections of knowledge and tech justice and that were for and with communities and people's movements. So um, for those of us who co-founded Whose Knowledge because we came from the Wikimedia Foundation, which is the nonprofit that operates Wikipedia, we were in a sense sort of sitting in the belly of the beast at the time. We were in Silicon Valley. Even as a tech nonprofit, we were sort of looking at what the tech companies were doing around us. And we had started sounding the alarm much before, in many ways, you know, it became the thing to do. Uh, but 
that's always the case, isn't it? As feminists, as black and brown feminists, we are the canaries in the coal mine. We sound the alarms. Nobody listens to us. Then everybody else has to figure out something's wrong. And then suddenly they're like, oh, we should have listened to them. Uh, or maybe they don't even say that. But we say you should have listened to us. But in any case, we started in 2016, and then we knew that what we wanted to do was to have, because we were a feminist collective, because we believed in a community-led agenda, we wanted to bring together a whole set of amazing people to think about what an internet or internets that were feminist and anti-oppressions and poor liberations would look like? What would our internet look like, right? And at that time, as you remember, it was the time of the fallist movements in South Africa, the student-led movements that were protesting once again the forms of decolonize the forms of colonization that were making life so difficult for young people, but people in general. Um, including around both fees, but also roads, the Roads Must Fall movement. And so for us, when we said decolonizing the internet, unlike everyone who now uses that term as some shiny term that just feels like the, you know, the brand new thing, uh, including, for instance, a whole group of people who now use it sort of... um, in a very blasé kind of non-political way, for us, it was really embedded in the politics and the histories of Southern Africa, in the politics and histories of Africa, and in the politics and histories of the Global South across the world of decolonizing, which many of us had come through through our families and our histories of independence movements, But this was a new round of decolonizing that we were looking at. And so in 2018, the the Wikimedia movement, which is the movement of Wikipedians and other advocates for free and open uh, knowledge, met in Cape Town. And and we decided to bring these 100 amazing feminists, community organizers, techies, journalists, scholars, academics, together with Wikimedians to think about, to imagine and reimagine and design and redesign the internets of our liberations. And you, Rachel, were one of those fabulous people. That's true. So that's how it began. That's true. And 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 actually for me, my my memory lane now that you mention it, I think I take it back around the same time because we were working very closely with one of our feminist partner, the Global Fund for Women. And they reach out to us and say, we also have this feminist organization that's also convening around, you know, decolonizing the internet? Is it something that you have thought about or would love to think about? And yeah, I think I remember when I read that email and I could connect, I could relate Mm. 
Because when you talk about issues to do with knowledge justice, I think that African women, African girls, feminists and activists are constantly uh, grappling with issues around being invisibilized, issues around uh, not having our stories being told by ourselves, not having to wait for anyone else to tell our stories, but being able to be the ones to tell our stories our way. And so being able to sit in there and, and, and also have that curiosity of saying, wait a minute, decolonizing the internet? Let's go to Cape Town. Let's go and connect with this fabulous, amazing feminist and tech activist and start thinking, what does it even look like? What does it even mean? But being present in Cape Town in this co-curated space that was really powerful, thinking around how we infused the Ubuntu spirit because we could connect with I am because we are. And then being able to go back and say, when we go to look at the content, uh, when we go, for instance, into Wikipedia, whose content is featuring, whose voices have been muted and whose voices have been preferenced whose reality is being invisibilized and why? What's the agenda behind it? And so being able to be in that space um, and finding myself deeply reflecting and thinking and saying, yeah, this is the fire that was lit for me in Cape Town. Just being able to say, how do we keep fanning this fire until we are having these conversations, mini conversations that then be able to multiply, multiply to the continent. And my dreaming was for decolonizing the internet, starting with East Africa, but ideally moving across to Southern Africa, to Western Africa, to Northern Africa, to Central Africa, to entirely DTI, decolonizing the internet as a movement across the continent. But not to mention also the networking and the connections within the feminists and activists in the space, some of them amazing, who we continue to staying in touch and, you know, just challenging each other and asking each other, um, how do we make sure that our content, um, not just the written content, because we also appreciate and understand uh, that most of us in Africa, we also have oral knowledge, which, again, is missing um, um, in, in the digital spaces. Uh, how do we even start thinking, bringing our knowledges in its diversities, into a space that has been curated to take knowledge in one skewed format. So again, just thinking and reflecting. And then come 2019 and reaching out to uh, whose knowledge again and saying, yeah, let's light that fire for DTI East Africa. And we had amazing co-creation, conspiring with the host knowledge and the feminine team. And we were planning to have this DTI convening in 2020. And then boom, COVID happens. And we say, let's hold on. Let's wait. Let's see how it is. But COVID then came and reinforced the very things we're talking about. Because all of a sudden, most of us were moved into the digital landscape. But it's a digital landscape that we had not even seen ourselves in the first place. A digital landscape that was not even created with us in, our, in mind. But this is what is it is that we have to still go back. How was it during the COVID um, um, pandemic uh, period for you uh, at whose knowledge? I think it was really 
exactly as you said. On the one hand, as a team, we were used to being remote and distributed. So unlike a whole lot of others who were sort of panicking and trying to figure out how to be online in a way that was meaningful, that was the easier part for us because we'd always been online and distributed and across many different continents. Um, we have folks from, you know, all the um, populated continents other than Australia, I think. Um, and at the same time, exactly as you said, Rachel, it brought the starkness of the inequities on the continuum between the physical and the online worlds. Because there's no binary anymore of being offline and online. We are all in this hybrid space. And even if we are digitally unconnected, what happens in the digital world affects us, particularly those who are poor and marginalized in different ways. And I think it's important just to remind all of us and those who are in this journey with us exactly why we're using terms like feminist and decolonizing, because the internet is not a, you know, one of those fabulous sort of breaks with history, as many people sort of make it out to be, this extraordinary technical innovation that completely revolutionizes the word world. It actually is a continuation of the histories and the structures of colonial capitalism. And we see that when we look at some of the evidence, just as you were saying, COVID reminded us that nearly 70% of the world is digitally connected, right? Most of us on the, on the mobile phone, because that's how most of us are connected. Some of us don't even realize we're on the internet because what do you get when you're on your phone? You get like Facebook or you get Google or you get one other app, WhatsApp. WhatsApp is probably the way most of us, you know, across Asia, Africa and Latin America think of the internet, right? But we are connected. Three-fourths of those who are digitally connected are from Asia, Africa, Latin America, the Caribbean and the Pacific Islands. 48% of all women are online, and yet the internet does not look like you and me. It does not speak our languages. It doesn't speak Kiswahili. It doesn't speak Kannada. It doesn't speak the over 7,000 spoken and signed languages in the world. And this is not a new thing either, because knowledge has always been colonized. What we think of as knowledge has always been constructed, or by always I mean constructed in the 500 years of colonization as being a hierarchy of Western knowledge versus all the rest of us, right? Mm -hmm. And our frenemies at Google did a really interesting research, oh, yes, right? Yes. Like did some, did some research a few years ago where they looked at how they projected how many books had been published in the world, mm -hmm. right? And they projected that about 130 million books had been published mm -hmm. in about or mostly in 480 languages. Guess which continent most of those languages came from? Mm -hmm. Europe. Yes. Right? Yeah. The colonizers' languages. And if you look at the fact that over 7,000 languages exist in the world, then just... Back of the envelope calculation, if you say language is a proxy for 
knowledge, which is true, right? It is. When you when you speak Kiswahili, you inhabit the world differently. That's true. You know the world differently than when I speak Bangla, right? Or both of us speak English. And so if you do just simple calculations, only 7% of the world's knowledges are in text, are in published material. Most of the world's knowledge is oral, it's embodied, it's visual, it's tactile, it's gestural, right? And so what is it that we are missing when we don't acknowledge the, the breadth, the richness, the texture, the layers of our, of our knowledges? And then you come to the internet and how that applies on the internet. Just about 500 languages are on the internet as well. So knowledge or information on the internet is just about the same as what is on text, because it's, again, the same digitization process. What will it digitize? What exists, right? Not what it doesn't even consider as knowledge, which is our oral knowledges, our visual knowledges, our, you know, our knowledges of gesture and embodiment. And then you come to Africa, right? And you think about knowledge production in Africa. And I think um, you were at the DTI where yes. we were talking about this and... Um, our wonderful compañera, Kelly Foster, who is a public historian um, and is a black Jamaican um, scholar, was talking about just 1% to 2% of knowledge production in the world comes from Africa. Unbelievable. Right? Mm. And why is this? Because this is a continuation of colonial capitalism. Who leads and governs and designs the internet or produces the internet, 5% of leadership in tech is women. Only 5% in the technology sector, the leaders of the technology sector are women. 6% of the workers at Apple are black. And it's even worse if you look at Facebook or Google, right? Five companies in the world control most of the internet's content and its infrastructures. Mm -hmm. And we know these, but I'll just name them mm -hmm. just so that we are doing, you know, the walk of shame. Yes. Like, we get slut-shamed, let's do it back. Yeah. Google, Amazon, Facebook, Facebook. Apple, Microsoft. GAFAM, as they are beautifully known, right? And literally, if you look at cloud storage, so we can be using many different providers, many different services, many different tools, and we may have the illusion that we have some control over this infrastructure, right, in that choice, including through free, free and open source software. But if you look at storage, ultimately, where is our content being stored? Where is all this being stored? Where is even our code being stored? Just two companies, Amazon and Microsoft control most of the cloud storage. So what does this mean? When we look at the governance of the internet, which is through a complex dance, permutation and combination of states and corporations and nonprofits like ICANN and IETF and ISOC, which are standard setting bodies, IETF, which is the Internet Engineering Task Force, which is a standard setting body, for technical protocols, 
the last in-person meeting, which was just before COVID, out of 1,100 attendees, six, six were from Africa. And then they ask us why we talk about decolonizing the internet. This is why. This is what it means. And so COVID, I think, brought that politics into such, such stark sort of visibility. No one could... So two things happened, I think. One is that the inequities were really clear. The other thing that happened, especially for the feminist movement, and I'll say this with all the love I have as a feminist, as someone who's been part of the movement for many years since I was, since I was a baby, um, almost, the feminist movement also had to come to terms with the fact that tech thinking about tech was no longer a luxury or something that could happen outside our usual conversations. When some of us as feminist techies started talking about how important we, it was that we had a feminist critique of tech in the early 2000s, we were a little too early, right? Like organizations like Association for Progressive Communications, APC, and so on, it felt like too early a conversation because people would say to us, oh, that stuff, that digital stuff doesn't connect. It, it doesn't, in, you know, it doesn't matter to us. That, we're not there. We're not, we're not doing that stuff. Mm. We're on the ground fighting, mm. right? And that was true at the time in a way, but it's no longer true. We, can we do longer. not have an option. Yeah. All of our activism on this continuum between physical and digital has to be fought in all of these many spaces. And the digital in particular, because it has this kind of, oh my God, there's, there's this kind of mythology around it, right? Uh, including um, amongst some of us that it's a democratic, emancipatory space. And don't get me wrong, it could be. I mean, it's brought us together. We've been doing all of our strategizing online. Mm -hmm. So there's a form of solidarity and, and community building and movement building that comes through the digital. And at the same time, we have to understand the underlying infrastructures and structures of power and privilege that are both historical and ongoing that marginalize us, that reduce our agency, that control us in so many different ways. And so for feminists as well, I think we have no choice anymore. And that really, Rachel, I think became so evident in the last four years, in the blur years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I agree with you completely now, Suya, when you say, as feminists, as activists, we have no choice. We have no choice but to continue applying our analysis of understanding power and, and, and surfacing how um, it is so imbued in, in, in the very structure that we say we want to use, we want to work, but there are certain things that still continue to hinder us from being able to exploit and to use this internet to its full potential because of those underlying power structures that keep showing up, that keep surfacing even in our work. I think I remember even for us during that COVID period for FemNet, when you know it had just begun in around that month of March, and uh, we convinced sisters and we had what we were calling heart-to-heart -heart conversations 
um, and were saying, where does it hurt? You know, how does it feel? How are you coping? How are you doing, Rafikis? You know? um, and it was hard. It was really hard for particularly frontline activists and feminists who are really at the front line of the community, grappling with so many things. Um, at one point, we have a government that's trying to do some containment measures that are so exclusive, that are so non-responsive because of the diversity of women and girls. Um, talking about women uh, with, and girls with disability, you know, talking about um, how violence, again, was really, really, there was a spotlight of reminding us the magnitude of gender-based violence in our homes. So there's this containment measure that requires you to stay at home to reduce the spread of, of the virus, but at the same time, the home is not safe for you as a woman. And, and so that there's so many layers, so many layers that came from that conversation. But the greatest was also being reminded about uh, how this message is about wash your hands or wear your mask or vaccinate or whatever it is, were being passed through gadgets and, 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 and platforms, digital platforms, uh, mobile connections, and then juxtaposing that to who has access, who has this mobile, who has this tool, who has access to the internet, who has this um, even basic mobile to be able to receive an SMS. And so a lot of that um, um, being lost, you know, um, and, and, and not in which reaching, language? And the most important, in which language? Because again, most government responses, because we did an analysis around that time, most of the languages were just the main ones, the ones that monopolized most of the countries were the I, ones that are told. The colonial and dominant languages. You know, even in terms of even sign language and braille, you know, came way, 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 way after. So again, constantly reminding us what you said, that we have no choice, but we have to keep being vigilant and being at the fore of constantly reminding our governments and private sector and everyone else um, that is engaged why it is important to apply this intersectionality in every response, be it for COVID or whatever it is, even in our dig digital landscape. I think, I think there's been a lot happening in the last two days because move from 2018 to 2019 to 2020, we're in 2022. Um, and we've been part of this co-creation of the DTI together with uh, Whose Knowledge and we love calling each other co-conspirators. And Rafikis. And Rafikis <laughs> and Navigas. <laughs> but, but just thinking about this last two days and probably also the four days because uh, the decolonizing the internet East Africa was organized. We agreed that we'll organize it around an event that's already ongoing. And this was the forum on, on internet governance in Africa. So that we, we have this space, this this beautiful co-created feminist space for candid reflections and candid conversations around what it means for each one of us and what it will take for us to start thinking about decolonizing the internet and being able to occupy and position ourselves within FIFA to listen, to understand, but also to see what is it that we also need to invite uh, FIFA to also start thinking about decolonizing the internet in an expansive way. I don't know where you sit there, um, Anasia, what's your feel as we think about DTI East Africa, FIFA Africa, 
Well, you know, I want to ask you first, Rafiki, because this has been your dream. In many ways, DTI East Africa, decolonizing the internet East Africa, bringing together East African feminists to have this conversation was your dream from yes. 2018. Yes. Yes. So for me, I want to hear how you felt first and how it's feeling for you at the end of this week that feels like a lifetime already. How does it feel for you? Wow, wow. I would say powerful, inspiring, and ready. Powerful in the sense of every single person that we shared this space in the first two days and the wealth of wisdom and knowledge and experiences uh, that we were able to share in that co-created space that we call DTI uh, convening and allowing ourselves to probe to interrogate, to ask ourselves, connect this decolonizing the internet with the work that we do. The beautiful thing about the DTI is that we brought feminists and activists from East Africa, but we also had some from Southern Africa and a few, you know, from different countries. A few of us proxy African feminists. And we also had a few <laughs> proxy African feminists. But close to 40 of us just been in, spending that time together and, and thinking and having this, I don't know how to call it, Anosuya, anger or fire, or being able to have light bulb moments, or being able to say, aha, I know how this connects with my work uh, when I'm working, for instance, with a community um, on issues to do with women's human rights. I see how this connects with the decolonizing the internet. I see the agency and why it's important for us not just to look at these tools as tools for sharing information, which is really important, but start thinking about the governance, start thinking about the infrastructure and the design of these tools and how we can position ourselves to continue influencing that they are that they're inclusive, um, that they are intersection, that they are um, centering uh, the marginalized communities um, in our societies. And so DTI for me was that powerful space for that kind of thing. But inspiring because then we then got to get into Fifth Africa and be able to see, aha, now we see what we're talking about when we're saying we need to decolonize the internet because it's an internet that was built without uh, most of us in mind. And being able to go to Fifth Africa and be able to listen to some of the events and some of the conversations going there and say, oh, yes, you're right. For instance, I remember attending this, I think I was sharing with you earlier, um, attending this event where we're talking about, for instance, Facebook, who has community guidelines, and being able to say that's the bare minimum Facebook can do is to make sure that it's in a language that is accessible to the many millions who have access to Facebook. But the realization that even that bare minimum of the guidelines, the community guidelines, are not translated in languages for the users you know, starts introducing the inequities and inequalities that exist within that kind of a platform that is supposed to be serving and being a, a tool and a platform. And also now thinking about who is Facebook, I think now they're meta and who is meta and, you know, for them to do translation would be like a blink of an eye. I mean, let's, let's talk about it. You know, it's just 
done. I mean, they just need to wave a wand and say, as translation, is it over 7,000? Done. But what is that that is continued to stop? Again, bringing back the foundation of what you're saying in terms of colonial and capitalistic foundations of a lot of the work that we um, that, that, that exists um, even in this uh, digital landscape. And so powerful, inspiring, and I would say ready, ready in the sense of all of us being able to say there's more that needs to be done. Yes, we gathered a few of us, around 40, uh, but there's a potentiality of us being able to reach to a few more and sharing with them this knowledge and, and being able to say it. Particularly our feminists and activists from the Francophone or the Lucophone or Arabophone, just being able to again um, reach out and start sparking these conversations, these deep reflections of saying, Local content is important. Yes, it's important for us to tell our stories. Yes, it's important for it to appear within the digital platforms. But let's go back fast to the foundation and being reminded of this famous quote about the master's uh, tools, not never dismantling the master's house, start even reimagining, you know, and saying, does it mean that we really need to even get rid of it and start thinking alternatives and what even alternative looks like for me the last couple of days is what I'm, I'm sitting with and I'm processing with and it excites me and makes me feel ready to start saying there's a way we can in our collectiveness take on and challenge but then again still have our eye on that reimagination of an alternative because isn't that what we always do as feminists? Keep thinking about alternatives, keep thinking about challenging the systems that are not working for us, even when we're being told they are meant to be working for us, but keep on challenging. Quite mouthful, Anna Suya, I don't know. Does this now give you an opportunity? <laughs> it's such a flavorful, powerful mouthful. So thank you, Rachel. I'm really glad that it meant all of that to you because quite apart from the way that we've been thinking of it and co-conspiring, as we've been saying, is who's knowledge and feminine. Ever since I met you in 2018, I know you've been holding this close, particularly. So it's really, for me, it's particularly moving to hear you feel how powerful it was. And for me as well, I think it was... Gosh, I'm getting a little emotional thinking about this. But I mean, dream come true. It was so much so because it was, I mean, this entire journey has been, it's just been such a short journey in a way for for us um, since 2016, 17, 18. And also so many lifetimes packed into it, especially I think COVID was the strange time of, Time stretched and compressed simultaneously. Time meant very different things. And, you know, in our cultures, time does mean different things. We, we think both in linear and cyclical time. We're, you know, much more adventurous about our notions of time. Right. But, I, but I think for me, the most inspiring thing was that to look at this room of incredible, powerful feminists and to say that those who have been so-called marginalized and marginalized by historical and ongoing structures of power and privilege are magic. We are magic because you could see the power. You could see where the revolution is coming from. 
you know, you could see that if we only had to center African feminists and other feminists from around the world at, at the core of the way the internet is produced, we would have such a different internet. Yes. I often use the imagination exercise, right? I often say to people, um, think of it this way. If colonization hadn't happened, Wakanda would not have been a so-called Afro-future, it would have been an Afro-past, right? And at the same time, I think one of the things for us to recognize as feminists who are challenging so many things simultaneously, the patriarchies within our own communities, the homophobia, the classism, the ableism, uh, the, the, the elitism of different kinds, our states as well as corporations, colonization then works with other forms of othering and privileging that our states and our communities also um, place upon our bodies and our minds and our souls, right? Decolonizing is really about decolonizing mind, body, soul, and heart, right? Um, because the colonizer colonized our lands, our bodies, and our minds. And so thinking about it that way and looking at this incredible range of feminists working across East Africa and other parts of Africa and some of us from the rest of the world, it just brought to mind for me that when you have the kind of solidarity that is solidarity in action and solidarity that is underpinned by a deep, deep sense of political commitment to better worlds, because we don't even believe in one better world, right? Mm -mm. We're feminists. We believe That's in true. the pluriverse. That's true. Um, we believe in plural possibilities. And we're also very practical simultaneously. So we imagine, but we also act simultaneously because we don't have a choice and we don't want to wait, right? We want to seize the moment. So you can see from the kinds and the conversations that we've already been listening to from all the different feminists and that we will listen to from all the feminists that came to DTI, it basically says to me that if we have this kind of connective tissue that brings us together and a connective understanding about the ways that the internet is produced and the structures of power that produce it in this way, we can also start constructing these alternatives that you're talking about. And at the same time, and this is where I hope Ancestor Lord will forgive me, but I think, I think when I read that essay of hers, I think to myself, I, I do believe she would understand what it would mean to be a revolutionary pragmatist or a pragmatic revolutionary, that in tech, we do have to understand the master's tools in order to dismantle the master's house. It is not sufficient, but it's necessary. Mm -hmm. So we need both to understand the master's tools, be in the master's spaces, challenge the master's spaces, change the tools, and then bring that house down to create the, I don't know, the extraordinary jungle 
of joy that we want, you know, the world and um, the digital world to be, right? So I, I think that that was what really inspired me both at DTI, just watching everyone just come together in this kind of energy of possibility. And even when there was overwhelm, when, you know, we offered the data up and we talked about that the sense of hegemonic power, this, you know, this almost absolute control over technological and socio-technical power. I think the thing to remember is if we just close our minds for a second and think our grandmother's time and today, how much have we achieved as feminists, right? We are our grandmother's wildest dreams and maybe some grandmother's wildest nightmares. But <laughs> <laughs> right. Right, but we have been able to make such possibility yeah. come true. Yeah. And so, yes, it can feel overwhelming, but this is not just the work of one of us or some of us, it's the work of all of us. And so I think knowing the master's tools, but imagining a world in which we have just societies, societies of liberation for all of us, and whether that is physical, digital, a combination, a version of the world that we haven't even imagined before, a version that connects all of our world, because here we are, with a planet on, on the verge of collapse. So we also have to think about life and sentience in all its connectedness. That interconnected world, I think, we can make happen. And honestly, both DTI and the way all of these fabulous African feminists showed up at FIFA, I could see that it would be possible. Another world is possible. Many worlds are possible. Many worlds are possible. Many feminist worlds are possible. Many feminist worlds are possible. Yeah. And yeah, it's 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 really a great honor. Like really when I think about it, like we are part of that rethinking, re-strategizing, and reimagining that many other possible worlds, many other possible feminist worlds, and be part of that contribution to that creation. And I like something that you said about the tools. <laughs> because then it also introduces an aspect of saying we can also understand the tools, at the same time be able to create our own tools and be able to see what angles are we going to use this analysis of understanding the tools that are at work but at the same time, still have our own weapons of our own tools that we begin chipping away, begin thinking about bring the, bringing down this house with that high hindsight of knowing that there are many other worlds out there. There are many other feminist worlds that are out there and the possibilities are many. And we're not doing it individually, we're doing it collectively from our little corners. Amazing, amazing. Let's 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 start thinking in terms of where do we go from here? <laughs> I'm excited about that. <laughs> what? What more can we think? Can we call to be and can we imagine moving forward from decolonizing the internet East Africa? Well, 
I'm Again. wondering how you're thinking about, Again? you know, exactly, the feminist colossus. <laughs> what does that look like? What does it look like to, to expand this conversation, to expand the actions across more of, as you said, Francophone, Lusophone, Arabophone, Africa? What does it look like to you, Rachel? Like it needs to be done immediately. <laughs> No, no like, going to bed tonight. Clearly. Like no going back tonight, clearly, because we <laughs> no are on <sleep>. fire. <laughs> but truly, 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 I think it's been able to keep this community that we, this fabulous, amazing community that we have co-created together, and we call it the DTI movement or whatever what name we want to call it, but just staying in touch and being able to see how we continue to position ourselves to share with our communities, but also start thinking in terms of DTI, like I said, West Africa, DTI, North Africa. That would be an, an interesting one. <laughs> DTI Central Africa. And, and ultimately, like I said, it's just been having an army, an army within the continent of, of activists and feminists whose analysis has been rekindled. Because some of the DTIs, uh, feminists, were reminding us it's like it's been there, but it, it just needed to be reignited, just needed a spark. And for some of us, it's just starting from way from just being able to connect. You've been doing some work of challenging and, and, and this kind of imagination, but you didn't have a name for it. And then now you have a name for it. And so there's another renewal that is burst within you and, and the work that you continue to do. So whatever space we find ourselves, whether it's the reignition or the, the rebirth of the moment, but I feel like it's a moment for us as not just feminine, but everyone who we shared this space in the last couple of days. So start thinking how we... I love that. I love Have that. I love that so much. And I particularly, I think, as you said that, one of the things that feels most inspiring to me, and I think came from those of us who are gratefully and happily proxy African feminists, <laughs> those of us who came from Asia like I did, or from Latin America like Mariana or Claudia did. And for us, I think there's also the the incredible inspiration that comes from knowing how powerful African women in tech are. And similarly for African women in tech to know their, their sisters and you know, their compañeras and compañeras in Latin America or in Asia to do this kind of connective tissue of across the global south or the global majority worlds um, because I think we already know Europe and North America don't know how magic we are. Mm -hmm. But there's a way in which we ourselves don't know how magic we are. That's true. And I think there's something very powerful about making that clear so that we can do more of this work and, and strategize and scheme in, in the ways that it can happen. I think both FemNet and Whose Knowledge are committed to this, and I think both of us think of this as, you know, practice, not a metaphor. There are incredible scholars like Linda Tuhiwai Smith is a Maori scholar from, from uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand, and um, Eve Tuck from, from 
Canada, from the First Nations in Canada, who say decolonizing is not a metaphor. And I think we have to remember that. It's yes. practice. It's, it's practice. about the practice of transforming, challenging and then transforming these structures of power. And I think this is the practice. This is the feminist practice of solidarity, of feminist friendship that can help us, you know, think about this extraordinarily, this multi-headed hydra and take little bits of it and start shifting and changing it. I think just the way that we showed up in FIFA did it. Mm. I mean, as you said, the way you showed up mm-hmm. and talked to the Facebook meta folks, mm-hmm. I do my best not to say meta mm. because let's just keep calling them Facebook. Mm. You know, the rebranding doesn't change what they do. They <laughs> but the way that you, that you spoke truth to power and the way that so many of, of us spoke truth to power, that is what we need to continue to do. And we need to continue to educate ourselves and hold ourselves accountable as we do this work for ourselves and our communities. And I do think there's a way in which we can build the tools, the practices, because we already have the politics, to transform what exists into something much, much, much better, much more just and liberatory. Decolonizing the internet is practice and it calls for intentionality it's collective work it's an ongoing practice it's an ongoing work until we bring it down (laughs) until we bring that master's house down Down. building that jungle of joy yes Hey. hey thank you thank you thank you very much for joining us for the Femininja podcast. We really believe and trust that you have enjoyed our conversations and they have pricked some thinking, some, some, some kind of wanting to find out more about feminism, about patriarchy, and what is the role for each one of us in detonating patriarchy and proudly and boldly claiming ourselves as feminists. So stay tuned, keep following us, engage with us on Femnet website www.femnet.org Thank you!